Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. Well, Tamson and Dan read the paper on uh, Sunday. Yeah. June twenty seventh. Okay. Two thousand twenty one. June twenty seventh. End of June. You know, you, you forgot to mention Michael's birthday. It was last Michael's week. birthday. One of our uh, most loyal listeners, Michael Abuhoff. It's his birthday. Eighty eight years old. Just the, no, I'm just kidding. He's younger than I am. I won't tell you how old he is, but he's younger than I am, so you know he's extremely young. Your kid brother. Happy birthday, Michael. Belated birthday. I did send him a card, and I will say it was a pretty damn funny card, and to Michael's credit, he did get back to me and say, how do you find funny cards? Uh, and I say, yeah, I look a lot. But the uh, other interesting thing is my brother Bob sent him an interesting card. I don't know if I mentioned this to you. A Shaquille O'Neal personal card. Not really personal. An e-card, right? An e-card in which uh, Shaquille O'Neal uh, seems to be going to great lengths to say happy birthday, Michael. Bob followed up by showing me what a happy birthday Dan would yeah, look like. like three years Shaquille. ago, I was sending people a Donny Osmond card where he sings a song. Yeah, well, okay, to the person. There's Donny Osmond, who clearly needs the money, so it's an easy thing for you to negotiate. And uh, as opposed to Shaquille O'Neal, who, uh, you know, what's that, Icy Hot? The man's making a huge living, and he took time out to wish uh, Michael a happy birthday. So, obviously, Michael's a big deal. Thank you, Shaq. Yes, congratulations. Uh, I, I just need to backpedal on a couple things. Go ahead. Go okay. Ahead. Number one, yeah. I just want to apologize mm-hmm. for my senior moment a couple weeks ago when I couldn't remember the word paradise. Okay. Because we were talking about uh, Dante yeah. and the Inferno yeah. and Purgatorio right. and Paradiso. Yeah. And I couldn't yes. think of it. And I and I, and, I, I and eventually I thought of it. Yes, I, I didn't even catch. And, and I just wanted to say. Yes, what? If you're thinking about reading the Inferno, because yes. I know it probably got you all excited. I was talking about. I can't think of any Hollander else. and his translation and yeah. other great translations and so on. Yeah. Um, I would encourage it. It's a, it's a great story. Don't bother. With purgatory or paradise. I wouldn't. Okay? Yes. It's the sinners who are fun. The sinning is interesting. And that's in what? Okay. What's that in? Uh, the Inferno. Oh, the Inferno. Dante's right. Inferno. The Inferno. Surely right. you've heard of it. Well, you, you emphasize paradise. You're throwing me off. But you're, you're emphasizing No, I, that, that's why I couldn't it. remember. I'm not interested the, in the people who, not, you know... Think about... We, we, don't we, sin. Paradise, but forget paradise. Sorry I said it. Forget paradise. It's Inferno. You're never going to see paradise. And you... That's good. Okay. And, but Inferno, you're totally into, and you remembered. And a lot of a lot of great yeah. stories it's, there. It's called Dante's but, but here's Inferno, the yeah. deal. You know, Dante, yeah. as he was going through the Inferno, yeah. visiting it, yeah. had, you know, a guide. All right? Virgil, right? right, right Showing of course, him of course. Uh, how to get around. As one and does, I yeah. think you, you may sit down and try to read the Inferno and say, wow, this is boring and it's meaningless. I have no idea what's going on. Well, that makes sense because the... The jokes, the stories, yeah. the gossip is hundreds of years old. Yeah. So you need somebody to lead you through it. You're really and selling it. Well, yeah. it, it turns out there yeah. are like a zillion free online courses you could take. Okay. So just as I took a course with uh, Mrs. Hollander all those years ago in community college, you can sit in the comfort of your own home mm-hmm. and take a course, at, a, a Yale course. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't take um, on the inferno unless uh, you didn't even else have to go available. to the Mercer County Community. I, I would go Mercer Yale. County. Mercer County is my first choice there between Mercer County and Yale. So, uh, what's your but, number two? Uh, um, step back. And my number two uh, backpedal is no good deed goes unpunished. Yes. I, I felt afterwards you made some remark to me, and I felt that seemed a little harsh. On whose part? Um, uh, of 
of a of a motto. It yeah. seems like a mean motto. It seems to be saying, "Don't bother doing good deeds because it will just right." And what, get what, you. But what does it really mean? It really means like uh, you do good deeds to do good deeds. Okay, you, and you can many times you try to do something helpful and fabulous. But you shouldn't expect. And it backfires. You shouldn't expect. And it's the to, worst to thing ever. Yeah. But you should not anticipate that you will be rewarded. The deed is the reward. Or put another way, you shouldn't do it for the reward because you can't count on the reward. The deed is the reward. Good point. Okay? Yeah. So I, and, and that's what I learned from him. I didn't learn, you know, don't do good deeds. I, you might I learned, learn both. You know, yeah, okay. <laughs> that's not true. That's not true at all. Well, we'll see um, how this whole all right, so works you, out. Yeah. You wanted me to... Uh, Start off. Start with. with uh, well, I found this article because I was. Yeah, you did. Find I'm this a careful article. reader. You got You want. You want to say that for the public. I'm a careful. Hero reader. or charlatan? Yeah. An economist push for in-person school. Yeah. Let's face it. Okay. Yeah. You're attracted to any article that has economist in the headline. Okay? <laughs> well, who isn't? Mister Economist. Who isn't? And uh, okay. so this is a story about Emily Oster, an economist at Brown University. We are accidentally familiar with her right. because we have children raising young children. And she has a book out. She has various books out. But the one uh, people have told us about is Crib Sheet, yeah. where she gives parental advice based on actual right. data. Well, when you say people, our kids are telling us this. I mean, our kids say to us, here's the book we're reading. I think this was Zeke, right? Here's the book we're reading. We find real helpful because this is... Real parenting advice, you know, from baby crib based on based science. actual science and data, and this is kind of mind blowing because first of all, number one, that Zeke's reading something that's always good. Number two, that uh, they're actually looking, they're taking this parenting seriously, and they're looking for real time advice. And number three, that they're excited that it's data driven by an economist. This is a win 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 situation. You're not sad that they're going to strangers writing books for help raising their children when they could come to two real f- experts? Yeah, I didn't think of it that way. You're right. Well, you know, no But good, anyway, no good deed goes If they're going to go to a stranger. Yes, yes. I mean, she does things like people say, you know, well, should uh, I let my child, you know, sleep in our bed? Right. Or should, and, how, and, how long do you, you breastfeed? Know, or stuff and of course, like that. if you go online, there are a million, but you know, bits of advice. She gives, depending on, she says, she goes to the studies. Right. Has, you know, how many children actually die from this? How right. dangerous is this for children? Right. And, and uh, she does studies. And then she meaningful puts, answers. She puts up the facts. Right. So they, it, it turns out much more dangerous to... Um, Consume alcohol than to have your child sleep in your right. bed. Right. So she does, you know, risk analysis. So the, the fact so anyway, that the matter is, so, we, so, so this she, person's on our radar, and we see this article, okay. and, and she's, but the article's about something else. There's a big everything. controversy. She, people look to her for advice. Yeah. Okay, so during the pandemic, I suppose one us, of the questions right, she yeah. was getting yeah. was, uh, is it better to have my in-laws watch my kid or send them to daycare? Yeah. We've been told to do neither, but that isn't a choice for working parents. Right. Okay. So she, you know, began to... Uh, it's a COVID question. Right? It's a COVID question. Right. Pandemic question. Right. And she, you know, stepped in to start to collect data on how dangerous is, is it to have kids in person in school. Right. Okay. You know, going back to the daycare idea. And... Uh, 
She said, it says here, by last fall, the database she set up, seeded with information voluntarily submitted by school administrators, suggested that simple, with simple precautions, schools could be operated without significant on-site transmission. Okay, her database has grown to um, include schools serving more than 12 million of the 56 million K through 12 kids uh, in various states. And her conclusion eventually echoed, were, as we know, eventually echoed by the CDC saying kids can go to in-person school. The word school. eventually is the key word yeah. there, yes. But, but of course, a lot of people objected to that. And right. she has, well, that's what the article is about. Yeah. She's, people got mad at her. She has been pelted, pelted. with criticism. Right. Okay, yeah. and uh, she says, you know, actually, you know, I, I'm pretty sensitive. This has been awful. I mean, and some people said, well, you know, it really depends on what the school is. You know, you're, talk, you're talking about uh, some schools uh, have a lot of money and are putting in, uh, you know, fabulous um, ventilation, etc. But, you know, then there are all these other schools in um, more at-risk places. Yeah. Uh, with uh, well, worse... Yeah, I'm sure there are all kinds of things that you can argue about here. But what's interesting is that she was attacked uh, pretty seriously and uh, probably, uh, needlessly, honestly. Uh, I mean, she's just trying to draw a scientific conclusion. I'm sure whatever she said was uh, well supported by the data, which doesn't mean there's no risk. But Well, the... she does. She, she says she acknowledges that while children of all races appear to be equally unlikely to contract COVID-19 within school buildings, overall risks do differ right. uh, well, by demographics. Yeah, well, I wasn't okay. really getting into demographics there. I'm just saying that she's she's drawing a conclusion about schools and her conclusion about schools right. is that they're relatively safe and a lot of people weren't willing or ready, ready is the word, to accept that. And so she got a lot of cuff. Yeah. But so, she is a know. scientist. I mean, and uh, she did have support for what she was saying. Uh, and she felt strongly about it because yeah. uh, the the risks, you know, once she did the analysis, uh, she really felt the risks of um, children uh, getting COVID-19 um, were minuscule compared to right. the risks, you know, the, the damage not, done by not being in missing school, school well, you know, missing people. Look, the reason it, it resonated with us, you know, happened to be a full-page article in the Times, but I don't care about that. The fact that, you know, that she has a reputation, so much so that the kids are actually looking to her for advice for young children as opposed to listening to us, uh, <laughs> means that she, her, you know, her methods uh, have, withstood the scrutiny of Zeke and others and uh, she counts for something. Uh, people listen to her and uh, so uh, it's interesting. I thought it was very interesting. Yeah. That is a far cry from Dr. Spock. Yeah. Well, yeah, Dr. Spock did the best he could with what he had. You know, it's, it's uh, in any event. Uh, well, basically, in general, when you're looking for advice, what do you do? You go on the internet and you, find and you search until you find something that agrees with what your gut well, feeling you hope is. you don't do that. Look, the, the fact is, perhaps the worst phrase that we've heard throughout this entire pandemic is the science. Because mm-hmm. there is nothing called the science, all right? The science is kind of a bizarre notion that suggests there's only one conclusion that can be reached. And of course, that's what science is all about. That's not true. So the question is, what are you really looking for? And you're looking for 
uh, well-supported conclusions, right. which uh, take a f- clear-eyed view of the risks on both sides of the equation. That's what this woman does. That's what right. she did here. Emily Oster. Right. The book is Crib Sheet. Yes. She's coming out with a new book, The yeah. Family Firm. Mm. Which is uh, dealing with slightly older children. Oh, you know, children just in time. Children because that school. pepper is growing up. <laughs> she needs another book. All right. So there's an obituary fellow named Alan Midget, uh, who you never heard of, who I never heard of. Uh, and that's part of the story. Well, what he's famous for, and what he's written up in the obituary, is that he impersonated Andy Warhol. So you're saying to yourself, well, is it a celebrity impersonator? Looked like Warhol made a few yeah, bucks. Did, did, did people get married by him? Like, yeah, yeah. like the Elvis impersonators? Yeah, I mean, big deal, big deal. Well, mm-hmm. here's what makes this a little bit different. He wasn't out there making a few bucks in Las Vegas by impersonating Andy Warhol. He was hired by Andy Warhol to impersonate him. And he stood in for Andy Warhol at events, uh, representing to folks that he was, in fact, Warhol when he was not. And uh, which is, what do you think of it? Kind of weird. Now, it's kind of interesting because Warhol has a little bit of a reputation. There's always been a controversy about Warhol artworks, which you know more about than I do. Really? You're say, going to explain Warhol artwork? Well, the people I'm say, is that really this. a Warhol? Is that by someone in his factory? I think it was called the factory. Oh, and they put oh, out oh. all these prints and the like. And uh, so there's a little bit of uh, how far the, the individual actually that, goes. That's so, the silliest thing I ever heard. Yeah, well, but... Not that what I said, but that, that, that there was a controversy about it. Yeah, because, I mean, uh, yeah, I is mean, that a real Tiffany or did somebody in I, his factory make it? I, is is that a real Raphael or did somebody in his atelier Okay, so uh, fine. So you're that. just saying you're not concerned about that. I'm, I'm not, not concerned, concerned about, about it either. But all I'm saying is Warhol appreciated, if I can use that term, the notion of extending things so that he didn't have to participate in a personal way. And extended to this. And 19... Oh, I'm going to say uh, 67, 68, 68, oh, 67, 67, there was a a tour uh, of certain schools that Warhol was supposed to go to. And instead of going himself, he sent Alan Midget, a guy he knew who could put on a Warhol wig and look and sound like Warhol, especially if no one had never heard what Andy Warhol sounded like. And uh, sure enough, he went to these schools, in particular in Utah, uh, and uh, later in Oregon, uh, and uh, he went to the schools, and he said, yeah, I'm Andy Warhol, and he gave the speeches that Andy would otherwise give. What's interesting is that he did this a bunch of times, but in these particular events, these people figured it out. So in January, there was an article in an Oregon newspaper saying, wait a second, this is a little bit of a hoax. This guy's been going to these campuses in Warhol. It's Alan Midget. And uh, Warhol, being the way he is, admitted it. And he said, yeah, what's the big deal? Quote, he, returning the midget, he's better than I am. He was what the people expected. They liked him better than they would have me. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, there you go. That's one solution to a problem. Um, And uh, Midget had other, you know, aspects of his career. He was sort of an actor in a few different things. Nothing really major. Uh, His career outside of the Warhol impersonation never really took flight. Uh, He actually worked with Warhol on a couple of films. And uh, the obituary ends with the following quote from Midget. He says, I helped Andy become recognized, but Andy helped me to remain unrecognized. And uh, so I guess he's a little happy. I, I'm that. fond of Warhol. Good. He's from Pittsburgh. You well, know. I know. And you My probably... mom's from Pittsburgh. Are you fond of Warhol or Alan Midget? I mean, uh, no, uh, I'm, I'm, well, I'm, uh, I have a fondness for the artist. I'm not sure, you know, it's not my favorite art. Oh, okay. But uh, he's a funny guy. He kind of really is. You mentioned Pittsburgh because he's kind of 
a real person, kind of small town person at the same time that he's this crazy autistic figure, you know? I don't think he ever walked away from that. He was mm-hmm. and It's silly to call Pittsburgh a small town, but it's not New York and it's not L.A. And he was, there's a grittiness to Warhol that he mm-hmm. never seemed mm-hmm. to walk away from. Hmm. So he was always that kid. So All I right. like that too. Okay. Oh, here you go. Here you go. Now you're, now you're rolling. This is now, the animal, the animal feature. Two different kinds of animals we're going to talk about. This article is titled, Oh, Please, Not the Cashmere. It's about moths. 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 moths are having a banner year, apparently. A field day with COVID. Because, uh, you know, then the, the whole article is about people, you know, going in their closets and uh, um, finding that their expensive cashmere sweaters, their designer cashmere sweaters that they haven't worn in a year because they haven't gotten dressed up mm-hmm. um, are all eaten. By moths, yeah, and problem. so you know, and I have been finding moths, uh, you know, uh, the evidence yeah. of uh, moth banquets mm-hmm. in my clothing, and it turns out, yeah, um, when things are packed up and put away, and no one disturbs them, uh, the moths munch away. Now it's not the moths; you understand that. It's the larva. It's oh, very good. Did you read the article? Maybe. Yeah. Um, Did I find the article? And yes. and they also like things that you've been wearing. Okay, it, it, they're usually eating. There's some. I mean, I read somewhere that, yeah. that um, they're often eating, actually eating the food that you've spilled. Yeah, they say something the, a little bit different you know, in the article. They, they yeah. love the sweat. You know, yeah. it has to be things you're wearing wow. if you want to keep uh, uh, moths out of your clothes. Then you should um, get them clean, dry dry cleaning. Which is really nasty stuff. Will kill anything. anything. Yeah, um, and and it may kill us too. But uh, so there's this whole article that the um, you know the moth people, the insect people are having kind of a field day as well, trying to help people with their moth situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also, for some reason, the same article go into great uh, a certain amount of detail about um, rodents are increasing as well. That people are closing up their apartments in New York, going away for six months, coming back, and you know, hmm. uh, little families of uh, rats are in the um, their drawers, etc. and so forth. Anyway, so you know, they didn't have a lot of any earth-shattering advice in terms of what to do. Just the usual stuff: keep things clean, you know, get out the cedar, blah 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 blah. Well, blah. the Wall Street Journal had an article a couple of weeks ago about repairing your clothes that are moth-eaten. Yeah, and consistent with the Wall Street Journal approach to such matters, the answer is it costs a fortune. Right, it's like seven hundred dollars. Right, you know? not, not that they're saying don't do it. They say yeah. do it. It just costs you a lot of money. Right, right. But I all I found um, another article about uh, uh, eels. Eels, yes, it's another big pest that you find in your apartment if you uh, keep your sweaters there, right? Well, this was in uh, you know the the trilobites uh, section. Of the New York Times. There's a trilobite section? Yeah. Well, it has interesting little stories in the science uh, okay, uh, columns. Um, and here's the headline. Yeah. When an eel climbs a ramp to eat squid from a clamp, that's a moray. Really? Get it? No. Oh, a moray. A moray. Oh, like a- oh, oh. 
like, I love that. That's Amore. Yeah, like, got it. I Amore. Yeah. And it turns out. M O R A Y, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so it turns out yeah. that uh, somebody's doing. Um, it talks about a video, which I'll, I will show you later, yeah. and uh, that shows an eel um, coming onto a ramp, going yeah. up a I ramp. Think I saw the picture. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And so uh, um, here's the deal. Yeah. Um, that it's kind of amazing that uh, eels can come out of the water to eat. Now, mm-hmm. generally, um, fish suck their food uh, in the water, mm-hmm. okay? It's suction feeding, all mm-hmm. right? Um, and the question is, uh, can, you know, um, are there other ways to eat if uh, if you're out of the water? Because the suction thing depends on, you know, sucking in the water right. uh, with the thing. So this is a whole um, article, yeah. column, about training eels to go up ramps they, and suck a piece of squid that's yeah. put out for them. And the way they're able to do it, um, they have two sets of jaws. Yeah. So they kind of bite the squid, pull it towards them, then the second set of jaws in their throat pops up and pulls it the rest of the way. Mm. That's pretty gross. Yes, thank you. Okay. Yes, that's what I was thinking. It's a, That second jaw is called the pharyngeal jaw mm. okay and uh so they were they have all these great stories in here including um uh, you know people people knew this people knew it um local people have known for a long time that mores can hunt on land so you know um in uh, martinique uh, fishermen throw squid on the sand and the more and the eels come up to grab the squid and the fishermen hit them with a stick mm-hmm. and catch them. Mm. Okay. Also, there was a story about a, an, a um, scientist based in London who had volunteered at an aquarium as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And there was a an eel there that while, um, you know, that learned somehow to climb up onto the, to a ledge while you know while the volunteers are like throwing food out to the mm-hmm. other fish in the in the water it would climb up onto the ledge to get like the first bite mm. directly so um anyway there, there's a lot of fun stories um including one about an especially large eel benjen who um they had trained the eels to eat these uh, one-inch size pieces to come up and get these one-inch size pieces of squid. Mm-hmm. Okay? Benjen wouldn't go for the one, one-inch one size. He would only come up if it was a double that size. Mm-hmm. For the really big pieces, then he would come in. Anyway, it's kind of, you know, interesting that you could tra- train eels to do that. Especially moray eels. Yes. Well, I, I like the song part. All right, so a fellow named Edward Diener passed away. Uh, the headline found a way to measure a sustainable happiness. Um, and the way the article uh, presents itself is that Diener was one of the first people in the psychology field some years ago uh, to express an interest in happiness. Uh, as he described as sustainable happiness, what you get from your family, work, 
meaning and purpose, having goals and values. Well-being is much more than having fun. Um, and uh, apparently, uh, at the time, uh, people weren't studying happiness at all. Um, the uh, Freud and Schopenhauer schools uh, were such that uh, the thought was the best you can do is not be miserable, according to the newspaper. But Ed said, no, there's something above zero. There's happiness, and you can measure it. That sounds to me like malarkey. Yeah, and it is malarkey. The rest of the article... I mean, I think we all knew about happiness. Well, the rest of the article proves that he didn't find a way to measure it. Uh, I mean, he, he seems like a, a fun guy, and he's a great practical joker. He, you know, they have a wonderful story about him dressing up as, like, Captain Hook, the fool's daughter-in-law or something like that. Why that's here, I don't know. But uh, then he, he came up with a scale, which he kind of conceded doesn't really work very well. And then uh, at the end, uh, they said, look, he loved examining data and he was content to keep researching without arriving at any final conclusions. Quote, his son said, his, father, his son worked with him. My father would say maybe in 100 years we'll have a comprehensive theory of happiness. Let's just observe, chart happiness and not rush it. So I think it's fair to say he didn't rush it and he didn't come up with too much. But uh, well, can we measure misery? Uh, we might be able to, but that we'll have to wait for another obituary. What's interesting yeah. is that at the same time, as it happens sometimes in the newspaper biz, there's an article which kind of links with this unknowingly. This would be in the uh, Sunday Review section. Uh, an article by a, um, a woman named Emily Smith, um, who's the author of a book called The Power of Meaning, Finding Fulfillment in a World Obsessed with Happiness. So she's drawing the distinction against Diener thought that no one was interested in happiness. She's saying the world's obsessed with happiness. Of course, you know, it's a few years later after Diener Piani's work. But she's distinguishing between fulfillment and happiness. And, you know, it's silly to get hung up on words. I think maybe Diener was interested in fulfillment also. I don't know that he was interested in happy and ha-ha happiness. But um, she's on to something a little bit more. And I think this kind of resonates a little bit more. Is, and, and what she observes, and she's observing this through the articles about COVID and how people dealt with the pandemic, but what she's observing is that people have their own narrative of their own life. In other words, if they sat down, she and others, right. sat down and asked people, tell me about your life. Yeah. And everyone says, okay, here's the story of my life, with a little prompting, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they come up with a narrative. And they said, look, you could have two people with what you might say... Uh, Superficially, at least, are the same circumstances. And, and one will say it's a miserable life, and one will say it's a, it was a happy, that's exactly, happy life. That's exactly right. Okay. Uh, and uh, she says there are two kinds of stories often. Redemptive stories on the one hand, or contamination stories on the other hand. Redemptive, you know, contamination stories is I was living my life and this happened, everything went to shit. Okay. And the redemptive stories is I was living my life and this thing happened. And we learned so much from this thing, even though on its surface it looked bad, and we recovered, and we did blank and blank. And we got something out of, you know, we made lemonade out of lemons. Um, and it really has to do with the way you look at things. And then you get to, you know, what caused you to look at things a different way. It's a whole different process. But, I mean, that at least seems to mean a little more than to measure But so that's not happy. the same life. People looked at their life differently, and, and that propelled them. They looked at the, the same event, similar events, yeah. but it propelled them to act in different ways. You know, the suggestion is it's often uh, the same life. I mean, it's not the same life. It's not the same person. But they said the circumstances can be pretty awfully similar. You know, they, they give an example of someone who had a redemptive experience and their son had uh, a brain disorder. 
They don't suggest the brain disorder was resolved in a favorable way or that it became healthy. No, but people, but then the parents, uh, you know. Thought about things differently, rallied yeah. in a different way. Right. Dealt with it in a different way. Right. But the brain disorder was the brain but disorder. It, but how they perceived the disorder. Well, how, you know, how they dealt with it. Propels them to yes. deal with it in different yes, ways. Yes, but it, well, there's a combination of what they did and how they think about things and how they approach things. Uh, and how, and that all coalesces in what they, what their narrative becomes, their personal narrative. And it might be the narrative that you associate with a person who is uh, happy or at least fulfilled in a way that the other person is not. And it all comes back to your psychological perspective on things, which goes to the kind of things that Diener would say, like, uh, it's nice to have money, but it's not everything. It's important to have a close relationship or two, um, Ethnicity has something to do with it, and then he goes into various factors. So it's a great mystery. But I think Diener may have started something, but he certainly didn't finish it. And yeah, uh, I doubt if he's the main guy who started it. Uh, maybe not. Maybe but not. But we are, I think we are more obsessed with happiness. Well, that, that goes back to this other woman's point. Yeah. Fulfillment versus happiness. I, 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 you know, I think Diener was probably using happiness in an awfully broad way. Mm-hmm. He just wanted some, some positive term. Uh, but yeah. I, 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 I take her point and yours, that there's such a thing as being obsessed well, with happiness as opposed to fulfillment. Talk about life stories. Yes, go ahead. Okay, this is a situation where uh, yeah, I would this is say, a good example. This read is. this article. Right, okay. It's Life After the Fall. Yeah. It's written by Franz Litz, L-I-D-Z, mm-hmm. in the New York Times, and it's about Julianne Diller. D-I-L-L-E-R. Mm-hmm. And the story of her life. The survivor of a 1971 Amazon crash still runs a research station her parents founded in Peru. Okay. So this is about a young woman. I think she was 16 or 17 at the time. She is flying with her mother on Christmas Eve, yeah. 1971, mm-hmm. from... Uh, Lima, uh, bound for another uh, port, for a port city, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know to go out to this uh, biological research station where they live and work, and uh, they're caught in a storm, and uh, the plane. Uh, I guess Julianne is sitting near the back of the plane. She sees lightning hit the plane, Mm -hmm. the plane comes apart, Mm -hmm. she's strapped into the seat, right, and suddenly she's falling. The plane, one minute she says she was in the plane, one minute, the next minute, there was no plane. Mm -hmm. And she was simply strapped into the seats, falling like 10,000 feet Mm -hmm. down to the ground. And she's the only survivor her mother um, was there with her, but she did not survive. And they think that uh, the dense, you know, tree canopy cushioned her uh, fall. Mm-hmm. Okay, she uh, you know, wakes up, uh, realizes from listening to the sounds mm-hmm. that she's in the jungle that she's familiar with. The jungle, mm-hmm. the same jungle as where the research uh, mm-hmm. facility is. She, uh, with only a small bag of candy and river water to sustain her, she walks for 11 days till she finds uh, a camp of uh, forest workers 
who uh, basically, you know, save her, give her food to eat, pour gasoline on the maggots that had, uh, um, that were thriving in her wounds. Mm. She, um, uh, her reaction was uh, not to um, uh, hate uh, the the forest, but actually uh, to love it. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, she said, you know, if I, basically, if I ever get out of this, she vowed that she, uh, she would devote her life to a meaningful cause that served uh, um, nature and humanity. And uh, that turns out to be this uh, uh, biological research sta- uh, station founded by her parents. Her, her, her family's from Germany. And uh, long story short, her father gets offered a job uh, in Lima, um, at uh, the Natural History Museum. It takes him two years to get there. It's just after World War II. And, uh, he, you know, it's hard to get anywhere uh, from Germany. Um, and uh, when he gets there, they said, sorry, we filled that position a while ago. Mm-hmm. But he ends up working for them. And uh, his wife ends up coming there too and working for them. And they eventually uh, set up this research um station out in the forest, Panguana, okay, which uh, is uh, um, home to more than 500 species of trees, 160 types of reptiles and amphibians, 100 kinds of fish, seven varieties of monkeys, you know, 380 bird species. It's just, you know, a wealth of nature to study. And so she's really made it her life's work to, you know, maintain that study and, and, you know, um, to save and preserve, uh, that, uh, property in that area and fund it. And, um, she said growing up there, she, uh, it's interesting. She, as a teenager, she was reluctant to move out with her parents mm-hmm. to this uh, research, uh, area in the middle of nowhere. And she said it, it was, uh, it was amazing. It was so beautiful. It was incredible. Um, and so she did love it. Her father, you know, she knew the, she, part of the reason she survived 11 days was she knew how to survive to some extent. She knew the forest, mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, insects, animals, birds, uh, etc. And her father, her parents had taught her, if you ever get lost, find moving water. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you're near a creek, follow it to it's, uh, you know, follow its course. It will lead eventually to a river and that will lead to human settlements. So, of course, this was an incredible story. She's a sole survivor as a teenager in the middle of uh, the rainforest. I mean, movies are made, etc. She always felt the kind of, um, you know... Um, sensationalized it? Sensationalized yeah. it. And she was very shy about it. But uh, in the 90s, she meets Werner Herzog who apparently um, was just, uh, almost took that same flight that night. They probably, Mm -hmm. he surmises they passed each other in the Lima airport. Mm -hmm. And he ends up making a uh, film of her. He, well, more importantly, 
they go back to the site of the crash mm-hmm. and it's really um, transformative for her. It's really healing for her. It gives her a chance to... Um, yeah. so, so you were saying he was making a Gary Ruff of God in that area. Which yeah. Is kind of a rough so area he was scouting well. locations yeah. in the 70s. Yeah. But he, you know, um, later in the 90s, yeah. uh, knows about her, seeks her out, takes her back and makes a film of her uh, called Wings of Hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was um, therapeutic, she said, Julianne Diller. At the time of the crash, no one offered me any formal counseling or psychological help. Um, and, you know, she waited all these years for some kind of help. But her, you know, her love to this day of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the rainforest mm-hmm. and uh, is just kind of amazing and her devotion to maintaining that rainforest is uh you know is a good deed yeah it's kind of an amazing story i mean uh yeah um so maybe we should try to watch that film yeah yeah might be interesting yeah i agree um i'm also supposed to mention uh an article you enjoyed well it's a silly article, but it's, it's, it's a Grand Theft Pistachio. 20 tons of nuts are recovered. Yeah, they, 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 they lost track of 20 tons of pistachio nuts. It's a lot of pistachio Well, that's a whole, like... Uh, that's a lot of bags of pistachio a t- nuts. tractor trailer of well, uh, pistachio right, nuts. They just lost track. They're, you know, they're doing inventory. They're saying this one went here, this one went there. And it turns out they're missing a tractor trailer load of pistachio nuts. Well, this guy... I mean, you know, they got all these trucks of nuts. He's probably deciding who's going to miss one truck. Right, exactly you know? right. And he almost got away with it. Well, they say that there's a big business in stealing nuts because he, because nuts don't go bad or not that fast. And therefore, the idea of pilfering nuts is uh, is a business. Well, what, I, what interested me is his name. What's his name? Alberto Montemayor. Okay who had been working for the Montemayor trucking business, mm-hmm. okay, that hired, that was hired by the pistachio the, people the, to right. transport. Okay, so his name, your point is that he's with the... It's company. an inside job. It's an, of course it's an inside <laughs> job. How else are you going to do it? Anyway, it's, so that reminded me of a book I'm reading. Yeah, which is? About, uh, it, it's uh, called Black Diamond yeah. by Martin Walker. Yeah. And I talked about Martin Marco before because uh, he um, he's a reporter, but he has a series of books about Bruno Correge, village policeman in the Dordogne section of France. Okay, a um, he's a you know he's a cook, he's a, you know a hunter, he's uh, he, he's a, you know kind of a fascinating, unique character mm-hmm. um, and he gets involved in uh, some sort of uh, scandals with truffles now he actually has a dog this um, imaginary character um, this book character has a dog who hunts truffles he's he's trained to hunt truffles yeah. among other things and he you know he sells the occasional truffle himself and he gets into uh, you know this whole um, you know, truffle business Mm -hmm. Uh, you know truffles are expensive did you know that yes i did okay so white truffles from italy yeah can cost uh fifteen hundred dollars a pound and so um bruno is only dealing with those um the french 
um, dark truffles, brown truffles. And those are like, I don't know, $200 a pound. So what's the name of this book again? Okay. Black Diamond. The Chinese truffles are like $5 a pound. So in this story, um, somebody is, uh, you know, repackaging, you know, the good truffles, mixing in uh, the Chinese truffles. All right. So if you're interested in um, food theft, food crime, that's a good book. Okay. Well, I'll I'll tell you. It's It's a fun book. All right. Um, Martin Walker. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry? Bruno. Bruno. So uh, the final story. Oh, it's an obituary. Richard Stolle, who was the founding editor of People Magazine. And for those uh, of us been around for a while, we remember that there used to be a People page in Time Magazine. And the People Time Life said, uh, wait a minute. Uh, Maybe we can make a whole magazine out of that. And that's what they did. And uh, this fellow, Richard Stolle, was uh, the guy that decided uh, the Time Life employee should be put in charge of it. And he was put in charge of it. And uh, People has been an enormously successful magazine. It's not uh, the most hard-hitting thing in the world, but it's about personalities. But it's the first thing you turn to in the doctor's office. Uh, It might be. It might be. He has rules. You know, he kind of was a little bit sensitive about the idea that it was kind of superficial. That said, he seemed to have rules which are pretty superficial. Uh, somebody re- re- describing a conversation with Stolly said Stolly's rules were that pretty sells better than ugly, young sells better than old, movies sell better than TV, TV sells better than sports, and anything sells better than politics. Now, things may have changed. But in any event, uh, those were his rules. And, uh, you know, that was a big thing to be in charge of. And yet... Uh, Stolle, uh, has written up in the article and consistent with an interview that I saw recorded of Stolle just a few years ago, the signature accomplishment in his life really had to do with the Kennedy assassination. Uh, it's in Stolle's view as well as the view of others, perhaps. And Stolle is the person who procured the, the Zapruder film. We were talking about it before. Um, and, uh, the Zapruder film for those of who don't recall it, was this. Uh, Kennedy assassination, November 1963. Kennedy's in, an or- uh, in a parade in uh, Dallas. Uh, turns a corner in an open limousine. And there's a fellow named... Uh, and, and, and as he goes down that boulevard, uh, he's shot from uh, gunshots from the uh, depository building, sixth floor above, and a uh, sniper takes him out. And, uh, of course, terrible tragedy, terrible panic... Um, and we all remember these iconic photographs of uh, Kennedy being shot and uh, Jackie Kennedy climbing, you may recall, mm-hmm. was climbing in the back of the car and the Secret Service agent climbing up, whatever. And let me tell you what that's from. It's from this is the Zapruder film. It's a film named Abe Zapruder, Z-A-P-R-U-D-E-R, who was a dressmaker who lived in uh, Dallas mm-hmm. and a uh, middle-aged guy. Uh, and he... Um, had just set up with his uh, eight millimeter camera, color camera on the corner, and he was going to, you know, take a film of uh, the Kennedy motorcade coming down the street. Mm-hmm. And he was there at the magic moment, turned turn the crank on his camera, and let it go at exactly the moment that he comes down this boulevard. Mm-hmm. And he gets the whole thing on film, mm-hmm. and nobody else does. There's no other record of what happened 
uh, in terms really? of Really? No one else was filming? No. And so how did uh, Stolly get it? Well, so it's kind of weird. There's a whole long story because, you know, it's hard to really... First of all, everyone thinks now you put it on your phone or whatever. There's, obviously, there's no such thing. And the idea that you're taking a film, you're taking an eight millimeter film. You're taking, and you remember what those movie cameras were yeah. like. They were yeah. kind of you, you had, difficult. You had family movies. Yeah, but on top of everything else, they don't develop right away. Right. And you just have the there was a, the real. There yeah. was a whole deal. I'm okay. with the detail here. He's got to get the thing developed quickly. He understands he's got something. He's dealing with Secret Service people. I don't know what the heck to do. Anyway, I'll, I'll skip all that. They get the Kodak people involved. Uh, it's a tricky thing to develop. But in any event, uh, this guy, Stolly, is in uh, L.A., flies to Dallas, I guess, on suggestion of time life. He's a young guy. And he's nosing around, and somebody says to him, you know, there's this guy, Abe Zapruder, who's got a, a film. It just says it to him. Mm-hmm. So he goes, and it's always got, he goes to the phone book in Dallas. Mm-hmm. And I, I forget which day it was, but you recall the assassination was on a Friday. So this is probably over the weekend. He goes to a phone book. And he says, Zapruder, Zapruder must be a Z. He's in the Z's. This sounds like it. This sounds, he finds a name, Zapruder. He says, that sounds like the name I heard. Mm-hmm. Calls up the one Zapruder in the phone book. The guy answers, it's Abe Zapruder. Mm-hmm. Abe Zapruder says to him, uh, yeah, yeah, I have this film. Yeah, I have this film. A couple of reporters were heard about it. They're coming by tomorrow at nine. Uh, you're welcome to come by. Okay? Mm-hmm. The next morning, he doesn't come by at nine. He comes by at eight. Right. This is what changes, what distinguishes him from everybody else. He walks in. Zapruder is there. He's a little pissed that he's a little early. But he says, you know, the truth is i got a couple of uh, guys from the government here. Anyway, we're about to look at the film together for the first time. You might as well sit in. Mm-hmm. And he's the only reporter there. Fine. So they sit in, and they're watching this thing all of them for the first time. And it's in color, mm-hmm. the movie. And it is graphic. Mm-hmm. And it is exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. And they're all like, it's 25 seconds long. Mm-hmm. And they're just stunned mm-hmm. from watching this thing. And it's over. And he says to himself, Stolly says to himself, I'm with Time Life. I gotta, I don't care what it costs. I got to get this film for Time Life. Mm-hmm. And he says to the guy, uh, you know, I got to negotiate. We got to work out a deal. And the guy, and Zapruder's very uncomfortable with the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile... The other reporters start arriving and they're screaming in the hallway, let me in, let me in. It's not fair. You're dealing with this guy. But apparently they're quite rude. Mm-hmm. And Zapruder's really put off by it. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that this guy, Stolly, is a gentleman. Mm-hmm. So they're talking, they're talking, and somehow they get to the number $50,000. And and Zapruder's kind of still, I don't know, I don't know. And, and Stolly says to him, look, I can't tell you I can go above it. Maybe I can, but I can't do it unless I talk to New York. And Zapruder says, you know something, I don't care about the money. That's fine. I'll do it, $50,000. And uh, Stolly writes up a contract or types up a contract or types up a paragraph. We got a deal, $50,000, and walks out with the film. Goes to Time Life. They have, they're pretty much getting their magazine set to go, mm-hmm. right? And they have, time is very short, but they're going crazy now they have this film. They didn't even know it existed. And they don't have enough time to put anything in the magazine in color. Mm-hmm. Uh, and God knows they they can't deal with the film qua film. So what they do is they take the frames of the film and they publish them in black and white. So the famous pictures everyone's used to seeing and probably mm-hmm. the ones you saw mm-hmm. are laid out in the pages of mm-hmm. of Life magazine. Okay. 
several days later, frame by frame of mm-hmm. the Zapruder film. Mm-hmm. Two things about that. Uh, one is that, according to Stalin, he says, you know something? This would not have made the impact it did if it had been done any other way. If you just flipped around a 24-second film, people would have said, oh, blah, blah, blah. Said, but to study the frame by frame, the way it was published in black and white made it almost more striking and mm-hmm. bigger deal, number one. Number two is there is a frame, I think it's called 313, which is actually, because Kennedy was shot twice. The first shot, he's uncomfortable. The second shot, without getting too graphic, is, is the kill shot, okay? Mm-hmm. And he, he part of him is missing almost. And uh, and I think this was discussed between Stalin and Zapruder. They don't publish that frame. They skip it mm-hmm. because it's too graphic. Yeah. It's too awful. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and it, a lot of the conspiracy theorists that follow that mm-hmm. are reacting to something that's missing a frame. Mm-hmm. Why is it missing a frame? We're missing something. It's a yeah. conspiracy. And it's only missing because Zapruder... And people at the time I thought it was a bad taste to put it in. But, 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 but if there were government guys but there... But let me just pause yeah. one second. I'll get you back. When they republished it later, they put that frame back in. So you're saying if there were government guys there, how does it go in the private sector? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. But, uh, you know, maybe they just felt it doesn't belong to the government. It's a private film. It is what it is. Uh, and interestingly, Time Life, they ended up paying him another 100000 So he ended up with $150,000. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, 10 or 15 years later, uh, Time Life gave it back to him for a dollar. They said, you know something? This was uh, great, but you know, we don't want to... It belongs to you. belongs to you. So Pruder was always uncomfortable with it. Thought it was a terribly unhappy experience. He was sorry he ever took the film, honestly. And now it's in some museum. And if you get on the internet, they'll tell you it's worth $18 million. So I don't know what that means. But uh, so Stolle's big story, his narrative, is that uh, he was involved in the, in the Zapruder film which was uh, described here as uh, once called, as the Times says, it the most important 26 seconds in celluloid history. Yeah. So there you have it. Okay, I think that's all we've got uh, this week. We'll be back in July. That's right. This is Tamsin Granger. Dan Abuhoff. Tamsin and Dan read the paper. See you then. <laughs>